This is A Diet of Brussels. In this episode, you'll hear an interview between myself and Robert Oxley, who is campaign director for Business for Britain. This was recorded at their offices in London on the 27th of August 2015. And for some thoughts about uh, that interview uh, and others, you can listen to episode 47. Obvious first question is, uh, can you say a bit about what the group does in general terms, but also specifically in relation to the EU, uh, which I guess is really the, the kind of focus of your activity? Well, absolutely. Business for Britain came out of the Bloomberg speech that David Cameron gave. Um, and it was founded in reaction to the fact that when David Cameron stood up and he promised this uh, referendum and renegotiation, the message that was supposedly coming from those people speaking on behalf of business was that this was a bad thing, that um, this was going to create uncertainty. You, know, you only had to turn on the TV to see numerous uh, characters uh, saying that, you know, from the CBI to Roland Rudd, saying that, that business didn't want this. And uh, Matthew Elliott, who founded Business for Britain, didn't feel that that represented the business view, and that in fact business opinion was much more varied on this issue um, and that while well, very publicly that the business actually did back the idea of a renegotiation referendum. So Business for Britain was designed to give the businesses that felt that way that voice. Um, I think that was its starting point and you can almost say in stage one of Business for Britain's life it was about securing the referendum because we do believe in fundamental change to the UK's relationship with the European Union um, and we also believe that that change would only have, would be possible through a referendum and a renegotiation beforehand. So I think phase one of the, the process was securing that uh, referendum and doing our best to campaign for it, but also uh, to articulate maybe what business wanted from the renegotiation process as well. Um, that has meant that we've built up a supporting list of over a 1,000 business leaders. Um, you know, we've grown and we've looked at areas from energy policy to you know, the amount that the EU spends on its own budgets. And from that point, we now have kind of gone and merged into what would have been stage two, which was defining what the renegotiation would look like. Um, and part of that came our publication Change or Go, uh, which was developed by our business board with a bunch of researchers who kind of know their stuff, uh, economic modelling from respect to the ECU groups uh, looking at the f- uh, future of the Eurozone. And now I think you know, we are getting closer to that, well, what happened in the referendum uh, side of things. So the group is very much focused on the kind of process that we're in now about renegotiation, about a referendum, uh, and what comes after. Um, is that, how, how would you differentiate yourself from the other business groups that we've seen? Uh, clearly we've got uh, pro-membership uh, uh, groups, uh, narrowly about the, the EU, but we've also got CBI, we've got Federation of Small Businesses. What, I think the obvious way to separate ourselves out is that we have always been very public in saying that if you can't secure the changes, if you can't secure a deal, we weren't scared of the prospect outside of the European Union. And in fact, one of the things that the Change or Go looked at was what would life be like outside of the European Union? And it decided that if you couldn't secure the fundamental changes that David Cameron had been talking about, that life outside of an unreformed European Union, Britain could both prosper and gain influence. So I think you know, we have always been in that process that you know, we've, we've said that there are significant changes that we would like to see that could put the UK's relationship on a sustainable footing with the EU. But if those changes are not achievable, that actually life outside of the EU, you know, whether you want to call it Brexit, whatever, um, that wouldn't be you know, the kind of the doomsday scenario that everyone painted. And actually, 
given the way that the European Union is going in terms of integration, in terms of the euro, that actually life would be better outside of an unreformed European Union or a European Union that is continuing on the, the path that it is currently set. I think that's always distinguished ourselves from, say, you know, those groups who have said we must stay in the EU come what may. You know, the CBI, et al., who've, who've always gone for that process. And even those people who specifically were very pro-Euro back in the days. You know, there are some of our supporters, some of our board were involved in the Business for Sterling campaign, you know, the group who actually campaigned against Britain joining the Euro. And I, I like to think that had Business for Britain been around back then, we would have been campaigning against the Euro. You know, sometimes that leads that we're led as Eurosceptic. Fair enough. I think the point that we have always been, is we've been very pragmatic about, there are changes we'd like to see. If you can't do those, you can walk away. And I think that's the kind of negotiating position that you know, the majority of people going into a, a, a business negotiation would take, is that they keep all options open. I'll come to thinking about what you'd like to, to see in a minute, but one of the, the things I'm interested in finding out about from, from all the different people I'm talking to is how you, you understand the EU at the moment. I mean, what's the e, is the EU intrinsically good, bad? Doesn't have any values, you know. Is it where does the power lie? Is it something that is desirable but problematic? Is it problematic but I, I, I don't think it's something where I've got into a moral judgment of you know is the EU a force for good or a force for bad? I think you see both sides of the argument where people see the European Union as can do no wrong, and you can see people who see the European Union as you know the the fault and cause of every ill in the world. I don't think that you know, either of those extreme positions uh, represent reality. I think the European Union has become something very different to, say, what Britain signed up to 40 years when it signed up to the, you know, the economic the community. Um, it has changed significantly from what was an economic relationship, you know, something which is about trade and about opening markets, to now it is much more a political institution. It is something which uh, affects our daily lives far more than ever, than ever before. It is something which means that many of the political decisions that previously would have been taken in Westminster are much more either taken or influenced from outside of Westminster. I also think that it is a body which for many is one purpose which has been an integrationist policy you know the ever closer union the ideas of uh, the fact that you know putting together the euro you know, it, it has been monet's vision um, now that is i'm not going to say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but it isn't something which I, it isn't something which i think britain ever signed up for and i don't think it's something that british people particularly signed up for in terms of the integration the currency the you know the various ways that the EU affects their lives on an everyday basis and rather the decisions and the transfer of power that has taken place. I don't think that is something which um, uh, I myself would have voted for at the time. I also think that, you know, if you were to choose today, if, you were to have, if the vote today was, should we join the European Union, I, I doubt you'd ever see a vote to say we would join it. So the EU is what it is today. Um, my question is, is can we change the relationship in a way that puts it on a sustainable footing for the UK? And if it cannot, you know, what are the alternatives? Those are the kind of questions which pose themselves. So from myself, it's a very cold-hearted, um, pragmatic view of what is in our best interests, both economically, but also you know, in terms of our politics, in terms of our future, about you know, what is our focus in the world. And for me at the moment, the EU is something which is focused on regionalisation, about regional policies, about further integration, very specifically focused around the Eurozone and the, the kind of solving those problems. When actually, from my worldview, it's all about globalisation and about how 
Britain prospers in a globalised world with you know, the economies emerging from power centres which are not the same power centres that they were 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago? It sounds as though you're suggesting that there's been a, a, a deviation from something that sounds like what it used to be was more what you would want now. No, because I think you will have people who will argue that the EU was always set on that path. That was always the path that it was going to take. Um, I think the circumstances change. You know, Jeremy Corbyn's political views might not change, but the world certainly does. And the if you look at the business polling, what people actually, you know, what businesses want when they look from it is they want a economic trading relationship with the European Union. They care about selling products and about, you know, uh, opening up the world. They don't care about, you know, the political integration of whether they want the euro or whether they want, um, you know, issues over, oh, God knows, you know, kind of the the political questions about the EU promoting itself, about ever closer union, about the, you know, this concept that we have to have a Europe, you know, which is what you generally hear about on the continent. I think, you know, if you look at the history, there's a great historical debate about, you know, the the evolution of institutions in the UK compared to the evolution of institutions in the European Union and well, in, the, in the Europe more widely. All of those are issues which are out there and where I think that Britain is certainly separate and has a different world view to the European Union. Now the question for me is whether, you know, despite those different cultures, can the, can the relationship be put on a basis where they can interact? Um, I do think that at the moment both the European Union and the UK are pulling in different directions. Um, people within the European Union are pulling in, in different directions. You know, the Dutch have a very different view of the world uh, and the union that they want to be part of than the French, the Italians, the Greeks, all sides of those things. Uh, from my perspective, it's, you know, what, what is in Britain's long-term interest? Not just in one or two years, but what's, what's in the interest of the 25 years? My problem is, is that when I look at the European Union as it is uh, built up today, it is, not, it is not built to compete in the 21st century. Um, it is answering the wrong questions with the wrong solutions and most of the time they are not in any way uh, accountable to the people who are paying for it or whose lives they are impacting. This then brings us to, to, to what you would like things to be and as you, you've already noted you know, the, the thrust of business for Britain has been change or go which suggests that as a first position, you see Britain as part of that community, that union, but on different terms from the ones that we have now. Not different terms, but a change. Well, we set out we set out ten key changes. They're not exhaust. There's not an exhaustive list, but it was certainly kind of. If you looked at the uh, areas that politicians in the UK had spoken about, businesses had spoken about in the UK, you could set clear ten areas where you could achieve changes which would improve Britain's relationship with the European Union, but also I think actually improve the European Union. I don't think this. I think there's a danger, particularly on the continent, that it's sometimes treated as British exceptionalism. This idea that Britain just wants a special deal for itself. Well, I think when you look at the fact that you know, the EU is shrinking as a share of world GDP uh, in terms of the way its trade deals it, that it's doing, all of these issues, uh, improving them and uh, making them more competitive, and frankly, it's not just tinkering and a little reform here. I think radical changes, they would actually mean that the EU is more sustainable in the long run. But in terms of for the UK's relationship, 
Um, you know, we've argued in terms of first, you know, the ability for trade deals. Trade deals in the EU take too long. Um, I believe that actually Britain would be better suited to making its own trade deals and would get them done far more quickly and wouldn't be dragged into the politics. You know, you look at TTIP at the moment and the arguments about TTIP range from you know, the politics of the NHS to human rights to uh, so many issues which aren't what many British businesses would think about, which is bake, breaking down trade barriers. Um, so I think in that issue, the UK is in a better position to set uh, trade deals, not only with the United States, but also the emerging economies. Um, I would also argue that in terms of the budget, you know, the EU budget continues to increase and there are ever-increasing demands for the EU to spend more money. Um, and I don't think that's right. I also think there needs to be greater transparency in the way the EU spends its money. Whether you agree with it or not, the public are not happy with the migration policy that we exist in. Uh, the framework that you have at the moment where trying to set a number or certainly to try and set a control on immigration uh, while having zero control on migration within the European Union is not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the public. It's not sustainable for businesses because you know, businesses are seeing you know, tier one, tier two visas from outside the European Union squeezed. So there's obviously an area of you know, looking at migration. An obvious one is regulation. There is a view within the European Parliament, I believe, that it is regulate first, think second. That has led to a lot of bad regulations. Now, you, know, you might argue that it's not quite as bad as it used to be, but when you look at things like you know, the recent VAT ruling, which was basically just getting micro-businesses to shut up shop, um, where the system benefits those who can absorb the cost of doing business in the EU, which also hampers kind of smaller firms, it also stifles innovation. All of those issues... Um, to me leave the fact that you need to have fewer regulations coming from the European Union but you also need to roll back what has been uh, created so there is a talk at the moment within the European Union of better regulation well there also has to be consideration about what has gone in the last 15-20 years and about what you roll back there all of those are concerns which go to uh, maybe a larger thing about democracy um, ultimately I think that decisions should be accountable in Westminster I think they should be more accountable than more easier to affect by the, the public or you know, the demos as it were uh, if the, the decisions are taken within the UK Parliament and that uh, fewer decisions are taken at a European level where they don't need to be um, I don't think that concept has really gone across the European Parliament which is in part always seeking to justify its existence and secondly I said seize regulation is always the answer like you know, the question we were posing um, this morning is why isn't there a European Google and those in Brussels think that the answer is that somehow they can create a European Google, which is just totally not the thinking that I think embodies enterprise, embodies business. It's the fact of uh, you know, getting out of the way. And when you talk about, say, you, know, you have regulations on health and safety or the amount of hours that you can work, I think those decisions should be accountable um, to the British Parliament so that when uh, I go to vote in a general election, if I vote for, a, say, a Conservative government, then I know what I'm going to get in terms of a government which maybe will strip regulations, or if I vote for a Labour government, I'm going to get ones who are going to put further social employment regulations in, so that we can have that debate at a national level and the result is something that we can control. I think, as a tangential, one of the reasons that you're suddenly seeing a growth in Euroscepticism on the left is because they've maybe realised that the relationship they had with the European Union was simply transactional, and that actually the European Union doesn't just simply embody the ideas they want, and that actually if, you know, say, me and Owen Jones on the left have this debate, often the decision that we arrive at, we can't change that because the decision is now taken not in the UK Parliament but in 
the European Parliament, or frankly, even above that in the European Commission. So those are the kind of issues which I think set out why changes need to be made. Which then raises the question of can those changes be made? We're in a process now of renegotiation. Do you travel hopefully in that process? Do you think it is possible to achieve all, some, one, none of your... I started out. I started out hopeful. I definitely started out hopeful because there was a deal that David Cameron could bring home and I could vote for. You know, there's, there's, I, and I think that is the kind of the moderate position of a lot of people. And in fact, if you looked at the way that the election went, the general election, David Cameron was actually empowered to get a deal because, you know, firstly, he was empowered at home because I, I, in the politics, I don't think the Liberal Democrats particularly wanted to see any significant changes. Whereas now, you know, with a Conservative majority government, basically David Cameron was going from London across to the European capitals with a stronger hand. I also think that you know Britain's position in the European Union as one of the largest budget contributors, you know, the the backbone of any uh, armed forces within Europe, uh, you know, one of the biggest advocates for free trade, a UN security member. For so many reasons, Britain is in a powerful negotiating system, uh, position, particularly when I believe the changes that it was arguing for um, are beneficial to the European Union. The problem that I have seen is that the changes that we were arguing for seem to have got less and less. And I think the culmination of that was the June Council, where you know, the, the diplomatic notes of what David Cameron was actually asking for in various European capitals were leaked, and it, it amounted to very little. We went from these changes had to be enshrined in treaty change to, and to full-on treaty change was the exact phrase used, to now they are, well, maybe we'll get a legally binding promise. But you know, call me a cynic, I saw what happened with the Eurozone bailouts, where we had a legal guarantee that we wouldn't be part of the bailouts, and then you know, when the, the interests of the Eurozone became more important, you know, Britain's legal guarantee was sacrificed at the altar of Eurozone interest. So without treaty change, I think that anything will be limited and it won't, its permanence will also be in question. And you know, whether the European Court of Justice uh, takes a view on it will all be limited. So I've seen a gradual watering down of what apparently we were looking for and, what we, and even less so what we might achieve. Because you know, on every kind of issue, there has been a lot of talk from the other side from the continent saying you can't have this, you can't do this, this we can't do this now um, while the second something like Greece has come up there has been a very quick fudge and I also think that you just have to look at the future of the European Union, the way that basically you need fiscal integration to solve the Euro crisis you know, the, as it is structured Greece is never going to grow uh, in the Eurozone as it is, you know, there are fundamental problems, they're not just cyclical problems of a result of a you know, oil prices or, or global economies, they are literally the way the Eurozone is construed, it is not going to grow. Um, and the kind of changes that are needed there firstly pose further challenges to the UK's position in the European Union, but also they, um, they pose questions of you know, how are we going to interact in that body, how are we going to have that vote, how are we going to protect our own interests when you have a block of Eurozone member states who are interested in pursuing the fiscal transaction tax or you know for political reasons have decided that they like the banker's bonus cap or that the ECB has decided that it has to have control of uh, euro denominated currency so they have to have they want to shift um, regulation of uh, clearing houses into the ECB's purview all of those are issues which are direct challenges to the UK's position within the European Union more widely so with all of that happening i have seen the case of why you need to have change but also it has seemed like Britain, and particularly David Cameron, who has very made this a personal issue for him, seems to be asking for a lot less and seems to begin to be delivering even, even less. Why do you think 
that is? Is it just a function of negotiations? Is it a function of David I think Cameron? I think I'm then getting into the personal politics of what does what is in David Cameron's mind. Regardless of why you think this has happened, you know that is maybe the job of a political author and historian to write in the next five years. We have arrived at a point where less is being asked for and a lot less looks to be delivered, which is exactly why Business for Britain has said, well, hang on a second, you know, you're not delivering on what we need to actually put this relationship on a sustainable basis. You, you can't put a referendum campaign together very quickly actually BFB now needs to start thinking about, right, what is the life outside of the European Union? How do you win that referendum to ensure that the result is in the best interest of Britain and isn't just, frankly, a, a paper exercise in terms of renegotiating our relationship? Um, you know, doing uh, question marks in your fingers don't really translate well into a podcast. Um, but, you know, a, kind of a, a very limited or, or fake renegotiation. How do you prevent that kind of thing happening? Uh, and I think that's why things have much more quickly shifted onto discussions about a referendum campaign or a no campaign. Looking ahead then to a, a referendum, uh, the actual campaign, whenever it is we, we get to that, uh, presumably sometime next year, what would you need to see come out of this renegotiation for Business for Britain? to support a yes vote? Well, I think Business for Britain set out those 10 changes, the change, you know, kind of the changes that we need. You know, something which matches up to the rhetoric of what David Cameron said in terms of over the last 10 years, just from his own, in his own words about the kind of changes that they needed. Because these weren't just kind of arbitrary changes, they were changes which were good for the UK's relationship with the European Union, and they were changes which were good for the European Union. And acceptance of those, those kind of issues, you know, when I was talking about migration, red tape, cost, transparency, um, all those kind of issues, like the ability to set free trade deals, the ability of national parliaments uh, to actually get together and block uh, legislation, you know, the kind of national vetoes and those issues, while also creating very much protections for the city, for issues about how you're going to deal with the Eurozone's integration. You know, it is a wide-ranging list, but this is a very important big relationship. If those things are delivered on and not just simply piecemeal changes, not just kind of a, a PR exercise, then yes, that is the kind of deal which I can vote for. It's the kind of deal that if presented with in the first place, people would say, well, actually, yeah, that's the kind of relationship that I would vote to join the European Union on. But if that isn't offered, then, you know, given that I believe that Britain can prosper and gain influence outside of an unreformed European Union, then absolutely that has to be an option on the table. But for that to be a realistic option on the table, you kind of have to start thinking about that now as well, because at this rate, we could have a referendum in April. You know, we, could, we could be nine months away from a referendum or less. We could, I suspect we're probably 12 months away from a referendum, but you know, we will see. That also then raises the question, given that you're in this sort of conditional position, that it, it very much depends on, on what comes out of the renegotiation. How do you see Business for Britain relating, say, to the official campaigns that, that are being and will be established? Well, Business for Britain has been very clear from the start. When we started to see uh, that David Cameron wasn't actually offering that deal, we did start talking to people about how you set up a no campaign. You know, my boss, Matthew Elliott, is somebody who has set up uh, and won referendum campaigns, and he knows that it's not something that you do very quickly. If you look at the referendum bill, everything in there suggests that it was built to call a snap uh, renegotiation, uh, a, sla a snap referendum after the renegotiation. I think if you just simply wait and don't do anything before, to, before you make up your mind on the renegotiation, 
you, you run the risk of being kind of um, you know beholden to events and things will get out, get out away from you very quickly. That is absolutely why Business for Britain has spoken to various organisations about setting up a no campaign. I believe that Business for Britain will be affiliated to part of a no campaign. You know, we will see how that goes, but I also believe that you know that position that they will entail that no change or go position. The idea that there are significant changes that would put the relationship on on a sustainable basis. Those changes aren't being offered at the moment, but you know I think if you're going to go into this whole process with a reasonable mind, you should not be committed to purely in at all costs or frankly, out no matter what. I think that's a reasonable position to take. What's your, your sense of how uh, the, 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 these campaigns are going to, to work? I mean, on both sides, clearly there's going to be, a, as you say, there's a range of positions, uh, a range of very different ideological, political perspectives. Do, do you see any issues in that? I think it'll be a challenge to anyone that you'll have a broad range of political views behind both campaigns. You know, you could easily find on a no side um, trade unionists uh, who are unhappy about the way that the EU has treated Greece to free marketeers who believe that they want to see you know, the UK uh, with free trade deals. I don't think those positions are incompatible because ultimately those positions come down to we should be making the decisions and taking control at a UK level, at our national level. So those positions aren't uh, incompatible at all. On the yes side, I think the real challenge for them is actually explaining what's going to happen. Because you are not going to have a vote simply for um, you know, the current relationship. The way the Eurozone is integrating, the way there is their push for ever closer union, for you know, further transfers of power from member states to an EU level... The, those in favour of yes are going to have to sh- set out how they've significantly changed the relationship. And I, and I do think it's, it's not just a little change, it's significant changes. Because going down the path of a potentially yes vote without any change, which is what some seem to advocate, isn't actually going, is, it would be the worst of all options. So I think there is a challenge to both sides. But I suspect you know, over the next 12 months those debates are going to be held widely and the public are going to be able to make an informed choice. I suppose that's the last question. Is it going to be an informed choice? And do you feel confident that this this referendum is an, is it's clearly an opportunity for informed debate, and that's clearly one of the reasons why I've been doing these podcasts. And you know, you do the work that you do as well to try and inform and engage public debate. Do you think that that is actually going to be what happens, or, or do you think that most people are? just going to follow cues from whoever they follow cues from and not really get involved? And I think there will be people who have made up their mind already, but if you look at the electorate, you know, there's a third who say who are going to vote one way no matter what. There's probably about a third who are going to vote the other way. There is a third in the middle who are going to make up their mind. Um, I think the challenge to both sides will be to make sure that the case that they present is fair, rational and reasonable. You know, the yes campaign you are going to have to stop talking about as if Europe and the EU are interchangeable. They're not. You know, the EU is a very different political institution to what Europe is. And I have seen that it is already a tactic of the kind of the yes campaigners that they want to conflate the two because they want to scare people into this idea that, you know, that leaving the EU is somehow withdrawing from our position in Europe, which is a continent. On the no side or the outside, you know, they're going to have to make sure they get their facts right. Um, you know, 
I occasionally shake Eurosceptics when they say you know, the EU's accounts haven't been signed off. And I say, yes, they have been signed off. The problem is that they weren't given a clean bill of health. The, you know, there's a, an error and fraud rate of 4.2%. Some of that's to do with the way the EU works. A lot of that's to do with the way member states work. You know, that is kind of the kind of thing where we're going to have to make sure that there's a factual debate. Um, and you know, I hope that you'll never find me saying that they haven't been signed off. They've had a clean bill of health. You know, I might be, I might be uh, setting my hoist by my own petard here. But I think that's going to be an important kind of thing about the, the clarity of language and the availability of information. And it will be important that you know, organisations who've got a view in this or an interest in this, uh, when they put forward certain arguments, say, you know, the same people who were predicting you know, 15 years ago that it'd be all doom and gloom if we didn't join the euro, I think people should also be challenged on the, you know, the history of their predictions. These are all the kind of issues which are going to be in the mix in what could be a very fascinating year in politics.